0: Today is June 20th. In 1975, Jaws, a film directed by Steven Spielberg that made countless viewers afraid to go into the water, opened in theaters. The story of a great white shark that terrorized a New York, England resort town became an instant blockbuster and the highest grossing film in movie history until it was bested by 1977's Star Wars. Jaws was nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Picture category and took home three Oscars for Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. The film, a breakthrough for director Spielberg, then 27 years old, spawned several sequels. The film starred Roy Schneider as principled police chief Martin Brody, Richard Dreyfuss as a marine biologist named Matt Hooper, and Robert Shaw as a grizzled fisherman called Quint. It was set in a fictional beach town of Amity and based on a best-selling novel, released in 1973 by Peter Benchley. Subsequently, water-themed, Benchley's bestsellers also made it to the big screen, including The Deep in 1977 with a budget of 12 million dollars jaws was produced by a team of richard van zanuck and david brown whose later credits include the verdict 1982 cocoon in 1985 and driving miss daisy in 1989 filming which took place in martha's vineyard massachusetts was plagued by delays and technical difficulties including malfunctioning mechanical sharks jaws put now famed director steven spielberg on the hollywood map Spielberg, largely self-taught in filmmaking, made his major feature-length directorial debut with the Sugarland Express in 1974. The film was critically well received but a box office flop. Following the success of Jaws, Spielberg went on to become one of the most influential iconic directors in the film world with such epics as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, 1982, Jurassic Park, 1993, Schindler's List in 1993, and Saving Private Ryan in 1998. E.T., Jaws, and Jurassic Park rank among the highest grossing movies of all time. On January 17, 1920, the law prohibiting the use or sale of alcohol in the United States went into effect. Before long, illegal bars called speakeasies were trying to pass off dangerous locally made industrial alcohol as the real thing, but customers were quickly rejecting the foul-tasting brew. The people were demanding quality, authentic scotch and other liquor right off the boat. Within weeks, organized smuggling of imported whiskey, rum, and other liquor called rum running began. Among the customers for imported booze from Europe, Canada, and the Caribbean were the nation's bootleggers who ran and supplied thousands of speakeasies. Tops among them were Big Bill Dwyer, dubbed King of the bootleggers by the press, and mob bosses Charles Lucky Luciano in New York and Al Capone in Chicago. Liquor was smuggled in from any country where it was still legal and the rum runners would then have to find new and unique ways to get it to their buyers. Shipments of whiskey from Great Britain traveled to Nassau in the Bahamas and elsewhere in the Caribbean before being smuggled to America's east coast in New Orleans. Whiskey distilled in Canada was smuggled by ship or across land to the west coast from British Columbia, to the Midwest from Saskatchewan in Ontario, and to the east from Nova Scotia and the French island of St. Pierre, a liquor smuggler's hot spot off Newfoundland. Loads of rum from the Caribbean, imported champagne, and other alcohol also made it ashore. Captains of boats loaded with liquor bottles and false bottoms beneath fish bins anchored offshore at designated areas waiting for contact boats. Small high-speed crafts with buyers who tossed aboard a bundle of large bills bound with elastic bands loaded their liquor orders onto their boats and sped to shore to load it onto trucks headed for New York, Boston, and other cities. One such stretch of ocean for liquor selling boats, famously called Rum Row, ran from New York to Atlantic City, 12 miles out in international waters to avoid the U.S. Coast Guard. The golden years of rum running were the early 1920s before the Bureau of Prohibition agents, local police, and the Coast Guard knew just what liquor smugglers were up to. On the Detroit River, Detroit's vicious Purple Gang used speedboats to run liquor into town from Windsor, Ontario. They also hijacked the loads of their competitors. One famous Western rum runner was Roy Olmstead, who shipped Canadian whiskey from a distillery in Victoria in southwestern Canada down the Harrow Strait, stashing it on Darcy Island in its way to Seattle. Olmstead was making $200,000 a month before prohibition agents tapped his phone, leading to his arrest and end as a rum runner in 1924. Individual bootleggers transporting booze by land to Seattle would hide it in automobiles under false floorboards with felt padding or in fake gas tanks. Sometimes, whiskey was mixed with air in the tubes of tires. To fool authorities at the border, a smuggler might have a woman and a child in his car with hidden liquor or even stowed inside of a school bus transporting children. Out at sea on the Great Lakes, rum runners in schooners or motorboats contended with the Coast Guard, rough weather, and frozen water. Even worse were the go-through guys. Hoodlums armed with pistols and machine guns in speedboats who hijacked ships, stole cargo cash, and at times killed rum runners' crew and sank the ships. The fast-moving Rum Runners frustrated Coast Guard so much that by 1923, the Commandant William E. Reynolds asked the federal government for 200 more cruisers and 90 speedboats for patrols to catch up with the contact boats. The agency also added 36 World War I naval ships to enforce prohibition and employ 11,000 officers and crew. On June 20, 1923, a large fleet of seaplanes were to be mobilized in an attempt to catch Rum Runners off the Atlantic coast. It was believed that this would be more successful than the current means of catching rum runners who were equipped with very fast boats who were outrunning federal agents. The reality is that they never really stopped the smuggling of liquor into the United States, and in the end prohibition uh, proved to be a miserable failure. On December 5, 1933, when the 21st Amendment was ratified, prohibition was abolished in the United States. And finally, the need for ensuring quick and reliable communication directly between the heads of government of nuclear weapons states first emerged in the context of efforts to reduce the danger that accident, miscalculation, and surprise attack might trigger a nuclear war. These risks, arising out of conditions which are novel in history and peculiar in the nuclear-armed missile age, can of course threaten all countries directly or indirectly. The Soviet Union had been the first nation to propose, in 1954, specific safeguards against surprise attack. It also expressed concern of the uh, danger of accidental war. At Western Initiative, a conference of experts on surprise attack was held in Geneva in 1958, but recessed without achieving conclusive results, although it simulated technical research on the issues involved. In it... Program for General and Complete Disarmament in a Peaceful World, presented to the General Assembly by President Kennedy on September 25, 1961, the United States proposed a group of measures to reduce the risk of war. These included advanced notification of military movements and maneuvers, observation posts at major transportation centers and air bases, and additional inspection arrangements. An international commission would be established to study possible further measures to reduce risks including failure of communication. The United States Draft Treaty, outlined submitted to the ENDC on April 18, 1962, added a proposal for the exchange of military missions to improve communications and understanding. It also proposed establishment of rapid and reliable communications along the heads of government and with the Secretary General of the United Nations. The Soviet Draft Treaty on General and Complete Disarmament, March 15, 1962, offered no provisions covering the risk of war by surprise attack, miscalculation, or accident. On July 16th, however, the Soviet Union introduced amendments to its draft that called for 1. a ban on joint maneuvers involving the forces of two or more states in advance notification of substantially military movements, 2. exchange of military missions, and 3. improved communication between heads of government and the UN Secretary General. These measures were not separable from the rest of the Soviet program. The Cuban Missile Crusade crisis of October 1962, compellingly underscored the importance of prompt, direct communication between heads of state. On December 12th of that year, a U.S. working paper submitted to the ENDC urged consideration of a number of measures to reduce the risk of war. These measures, the United States argued, offered opportunities for early arrangement and could be undertaken either as a group or separately. Included was establishment of communication links between major capitals to ensure rapid and reliable communication in times of crisis. The working paper suggested that it did not appear either necessary or desirable to specify in advance all the situations in which special communications link might be used. In the view of the United States, such a link would should as a general matter be reserved for emergency use that is to say for example that it might be reserved for communications concerning a military crisis which might appear directly to threaten the security of either of the states involved and where such developments were taking place at a rate which appeared to preclude the use of normal consultative procedures effectiveness of the link would not be degraded through use or for other matters Then, on June 20, 1963, at Geneva, the U.S. and Soviet representatives to the ENDC completed negotiations inside the Memorandum of Understanding between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics regarding the establishment of a direct communications link. The memorandum provided that each government should be responsible for arrangements of the link on its own territory, including continuous functioning of the link and prompt delivery of communications to its head of government. An annex set forth the routing and components of the link to provide for allocation of cost, exchange of equipment, and other technical matters. The direct communications link would comprise a full-time duplex wire telegraph circuit from Washington to London, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Helsinki, and Moscow, and a full-time duplex radio telegraph circuit from Washington to Tangier to Moscow with two terminal points with teletype equipment. If the wire circuit should be interrupted messages would be transmitted by the radio circuit if experience showed the need for an additional wire circuit it might be established by the mutual agreement the hotline agreement the first bilateral agreement between the united states and the soviet union gave concrete recognition to the perils implicit in modern nuclear weapons systems was a limited but practical step to bring these perils under rational control the communications link has proved its worth since its installation during the Arab Israeli War in 1967, for example, the United States used it to prevent possible misunderstanding of U.S. fleet movements in the Mediterranean. It was used again during the 1973 Arab Israeli War. The significance of the hotline is further attested by the 1971, 1984, and 1988 agreements to modernize it. These agreements are discussed in following sections. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. The PeopleHistory.com, Jaws on History.com Rum Smugglers and Seaplanes on Schulenberg.com, Hotline established between U.S. and Soviet Union at 2009-2017.state.gov